The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Listen, I know that Christmas was uh, a couple weeks ago, but I like to start today by looking at a picture, and uh, I want you to to look with me here. If you could put up the next picture here, Uh, take a look at this. This is a nativity scene. I want to ask you what's wrong with it. All right, so we got got a manger, stable, Mary, Joseph, check, baby Jesus, got a little animals. Um, It's all good. You got a little hay. Some of you know, though. Some of you may be sticklers about this. It's not quite accurate, is it? Because what about these three dudes right there? <laughs> All right. Um, these are the wise men, the, uh, the magi, if you, if you will. And let me tell you, they don't belong. They don't belong here, at least not yet. We're going to read this morning their story. And uh, what we're going to see is, uh, man, the timeline's all off with these guys. Uh, I had a friend who was really literal, and uh, he would often take nativity scenes, even if you didn't ask him to, and let's say it's in your living room, and he would grab these three dudes and take them to the kitchen. (laughs) It's like, come on, man. Uh, Now, he was a little crazy, but he's technically right, technically. Um, These guys weren't at Jesus's birth, as we're going to see, but although they weren't part of the manger scene, they're a part of this incredible story. So we're going to be in Matthew 2, and we're going to see, what we're going to see is the sovereign plan of God unfolding in this story. In fact, um, I want to start off with one statement. It's going to serve as the bedrock of everything we do in this time together today. Our statement is this, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, what does that mean? We're going to unpack that today through this story, because there are some massive implications for that in your life. Um, I want to start off with just a definition. I actually asked my my oldest son today, I was like, do you know what sovereign means? And I usually bounce it off of him to see if I need to give definitions for things sometimes. Um, uh, He he did. I was was impressed. But I'm still going to use this um, define this term, because I don't want us to just say this and not know what it means. When we say the sovereignty of God, what are we talking about? Um, when we say the sovereignty of God, we are referring to his power and his authority. The, the, the understanding that our God is over all things, Lord of lords, King of kings, the sovereign. That's what we're talking about here. Um, there is a theologian, Uh, John Frame, he gives this definition for this. I want to put it up here. He says, the sovereignty of God is the fact that he is the Lord over creation. He continues, he says, as sovereign, he exercises his rule. The rule is exercised through God's authority as king, his control over all things, and his presence with his covenantal people and throughout his creation. It's wordy. We're going to break that down. 
but this is what the sovereignty of God is. It's the fact that our God is Lord of all. Another way to say this is another definition. This one comes from John Piper. He says, God is powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. In other words, all authority in heaven and on earth is under his authority, and there is no other authority that can override the authority of God. That is the sovereignty of God. His sovereign plan, his sovereign power, and his sovereign presence with his creation. Now, we're going to dig into that a lot. I just gave you a lot. We're going to come back. We're going to dig into that through this story. And I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to grab them, open with me to Matthew 2. And um, if you're using one of these, uh, it's going to be on page 10 through 14. And uh, along with that comes a warning. We're going to be walking through Matthew as a church really slowly. In fact, our plan is to get to Matthew 9 next Chris, or this Christmas. So real slow, all right? Um, we're going to be walking through it as the text kind of unfolds, but here's the thing, except for this morning. Um, we're going to be taking on all of chapter two right now. So um, we're going to be going slow later, but not today. Um, we're going to be taking on all of chapter two. Why? Because it's one big story. It's one story, one narrative. It goes together. So I want to encourage you, buckle up. We're going to be chewing through four pages of this today and, uh, and, and walking through this story. So with that, I, w- I do want to encourage you, as we walk through the story, um, take, take it in and almost put yourself into the story. Because this is a story. It's a true story. It's a real story. So as we walk through this, I'm going to do my best to simply just tell it as Scripture reveals it. And then we can unpack it together, okay? Matthew 2, we're going to go to verse 1. says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Um, after, meaning they weren't at the nativity scene. After, all right? How long after? Here's the deal. We don't know. We, we don't know. We just know it was after. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who is born, who has been born, king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Okay. I want to start with some context for this story a little bit as we tell it, so it'll really kind of sink in for us. And I want to bring out three things before we tell this crazy story that's about unfold to unfold. Number, number one is I want to talk about Bethlehem for a second. Bethlehem of Judea. Um, Bethlehem was not a major city. We hear it. It's famous today. Was not then. Um, not a famous city. It's not the city you would think of when you think of a king. Um, it's not the city you would think of when you think a king would come from the city. No, you don't think of Bethlehem. It was a small town. It's a small suburb of a city south of Jerusalem. Um, Bethlehem is not the city you would expect when you think of the Messiah. Not what you would expect. Let me put it like this. Um, Bethlehem is a little bit like this. I don't want to pick on anyone from Lavernia 
Bethlehem is to Jerusalem as Lavernia is to San Antonio. No offense to anyone from Laverne. I'm sure there's fantastic people there. I'm sure there's fantastic things going on here. I'm just working off a map here, okay? Um, but if you were to think of Lavernia, you don't expect the city of a king. Maybe you do, again. Um, you don't expect the next president of the United States to come from Lavernia. That's the feeling toward Bethlehem. Um, and, and here's the thing about Bethlehem that makes it even more crazy and significant is a, a city like that was the city that was prophesied about. The prophet Micah says this in Micah 5.2, Oh, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too small, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Just this prophecy, it blows my mind. When you think of Bethlehem, this place seemingly small and insignificant, the place that God would choose to bring the Messiah. It would have sounded crazy to them, but it's the plan of God. So that is Bethlehem. I want to move to the second thing for some context here, and that is Herod. We're going to talk a lot about O. Herod in this story, and I want to put out some context for you. He's one of many Herods, known as Herod the Great. He was a really interesting guy. His dad was a, was a Jew, an Edomite. Um, doesn't mean much to us, maybe, but that means that he was related to Jacob through Esau. And um, what that did, though, is it gave him this connection to the Jewish people. And it allowed his... His father, Herod's father, his dad, to gain influence under the Roman Empire. And, and the truth is, is that Herod's dad's influence set the path for him uh, to gain influence. And so Herod, the boy, was given power and authority over Galilee, ultimately Judea, and uh, given this power, significant power, over the Jewish people in this, in this area. I found this interesting, and I found this from multiple places in, in study this week, that during this time, Herod was actually given an interesting title by the Roman Senate. He was called, referred to, get this, the King of the Jews. Yeah, that, uh, that's right. I mean, if you hear that, can you see the potential problem that's about to happen? The train wreck that might be right here. The, this declared King of the Jew hears from the wise men and from others that another King of the Jews has been born in your own area. There's a problem coming. So that's Bethlehem. That's Herod. Context number three, lastly, is these three wise men, magi. Um, they weren't kings in a traditional sense, uh, but they were a combination of wise men and priests, most likely from Persia and in Babylon. Um, but they were, here's, here's the deal about them. They were powerful and influential men, and they were both powerful politically and religiously. And uh, they were prominent, and, and they were also students of the stars, right? Um, astrologers, little kooky. And uh, if you think of, like, horoscopes here, that's kind of their, their deal, but they, these guys were serious and students of the stars. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot of speculation as to how these wise men knew Jesus was coming. We don't know. We, we don't know. 
how they knew about the birth of Jesus, how they knew about the importance of this child born, we don't know. But what we do know is they traveled from the, the east to meet this child. These men of influence traveled from the east to meet this child, which causes a lot of commotion in the land. And, and, and hear me, one more thing about this. This was not a short trip. This would have been months, potentially years, this trip to make this journey from Mesopotamia to Jerusalem. It's a huge trip, okay? So that's the context. Now, let's dive back in. They get to Jerusalem, coming from the east, verse 2, and they get to Jerusalem and they say, where is he? Where is this king, the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, we've come to worship him. When Herod heard this, as you would imagine, he was troubled in Jerusalem with him. So Herod was troubled. Why? Because he's a bit paranoid and feels like a little threatened here. Um, and the people heard this and were troubled, thinking a new king. What does that mean for us? And so there's this uproar. And then verse 4. So assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he asked and he inquired of them where, was, where the Christ was to be born. And I almost, you know, hear them thinking, like, why are you asking, Herod? Um, but we'll get to that. Verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And here's where the scribes, the chief priests, they quote Micah 5 here, connecting Jesus, this newborn child, to the prophecy. And they say, verse 6, for you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Okay, so what's your move now, Herod? Verse 7, Herod summons these wise men secretly, and he starts a spy mission, a gathering of information mission with them, ascertaining from them what time that star had appeared. It's a little spy mission going on here. And then Herod flat up lies. Verse 8, tries to see them. He, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, hey, go and search for this child. And when you found him, bring him to me that I too may come and worship him. That's a lie. Um, but, you know, to be clear, he had no intention of worshiping him. His attentions are going to become very clear. Here's the story on goes. But the wise men, they do, they go. And then in verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way and it says, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So the prophecy, the journey, it had all led to this. Verse 11, and going into the house, not the manger, the house, Again, later, not at the scene. Anyway, um, going to the house, they, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him the gifts. Um, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What a moment this was. Um, these men, they arrive in the house, house, and their intention of these men were very clear. We don't know their faith. We don't know much about them, but what we do know is they came believing in who this child was and they fell on their face in worship. This was a costly trip, and they brought costly gifts, and they fall in worship. What a moment this was. And I, I, I want to bring out one more thing. I don't want it to get lost on us. These wise men were not Jewish. 
They were Gentiles. And so already you see the eyes of Gentiles being opened to who Jesus was. It's a foretaste of what was to come. But here after their long journey, they fall on their knees. They worship this child, Jesus Christ, the prophesied Messiah. And then listen, verse 12. We're gonna come back to this. But, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, these wise men, they departed their, to their own country by another way. The Lord gives these wise men wisdom and they listen. But not only that, verse 13, and when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for this child to destroy him. So not only did um, the Lord give the wise men wisdom to go a different way, he gives Joseph and Mary wisdom as well, telling them what was to come. And just like the wise men, they, they listened, they believed, and they obeyed. Verse 14, so they rose, they took the child and his mother by night, departed for Egypt, and they remained there until the death of Herod. And just so we're clear, on yet another prophecy, this time from Hosea 11, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Hosea. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. This is interesting. In trying to stop the prophecy from coming true, Herod is actually seeing more prophecies come true. It's really cool. Our story continues. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by these wise men, wise men he becomes furious because how dare you? I am the king of the Jews how dare you trick me? And you can start to feel his paranoia grow. He becomes furious, and um, this is heavy. He, um, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the, from the wise men. And I don't want us to rush past the, how horrific that is, the weight of this, it's the murder of kids. And um, he was so paranoid that he murdered every male child, two years old or younger. And can you imagine the pain of that moment? Um, I'm gonna pick on Lavernia again. This might get dark, but I, follow me. What if out of the paranoia of a leader, Every male child two years or younger in Lavernia is rounded up, taken from their parents, taken from their homes, and killed. It's horrific. It's state-sponsored, government-sponsored murder, homicide, pedicide. It's incredibly evil. And even in that, though, even in this evil and how painful this is, the plan of God still moves forward because even in this evil, another prophecy is fulfilled. This time from Jeremiah, verse 17, this then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It's horrible. Um, this evil, though, does not last long because, in verse 9, when Herod died, love that line, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to, to um, Joseph in Egypt, 
saying, rise, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Go back from Egypt to, to Israel. For the ones who sought this child's life, they're dead. So he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Um, here's the thing though, when you've been systematically hunted by your government, you're a little bit cautious. And that's what happens here because in verse 22, he hears that Archelaus, that's Herod's little boy. When he hears that he was the one reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, Joseph was. Um, Will he try to finish his father's work? So again, God intervenes, being warned in another dream. He withdraws to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. And guess what, church? There's another prophecy that is fulfilled here so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this isn't a direct quote like the rest of them. Um, Most likely, this is referring to Isaiah 11.1, most likely, where uh, Isaiah 11.1 says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Um, You may hear that and be like, that says nothing about Nazareth. Okay, branch, And uh, Nazareth in Hebrew, very similar. And so most connect that. In fact, all of the gospel writers in the New Testament will. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of the gospel writers connect this prophecy to Jesus. And so yet again, what we see is in this story, as we close this chapter of the story, it closes with yet another prophecy finding its fulfillment in Christ Let me start where we, or let me uh, end the story where we started. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. From, From the start to the finish, this story shows the sovereignty of God. Matthew shows us that Jesus Christ is the perfect plan of God. And I want to, in our time that we have together today in this story, I want to look at three areas of his sovereignty that are very important for us to see in this story. Um, and I referenced them. God is sovereign in his plan, in his power, and in his presence. And I want to deal with all three of these as we look at this story. And I want to start with the first one, and I want to start with his plan. God is sovereign in his plan, in his purposes. The plan from the beginning, the plan, the plan from the garden. In Genesis, the plan of the Old Testament, the plan of the prophets, the plan, period, the plan of God is Jesus Christ. God has a plan. His plan is Christ. Okay, that sounds very elementary, but I want to follow that out with what that means for you. What that means, church, is that we, me and you, are not the center of the plan. You, as magical as you are, are not the center of this plan. Um, You might hear that and you think, well, that's depressing. Pastor, aren't you supposed to tell me that I am the center and that God has turned the universe upside down to save me and, you know, he loves me. Listen, no, Um, because here's the truth. The truth is that, yes, God loves you more than you can possibly even imagine. 
The truth is, yes, God loves you, and he demonstrated his great love for you by sending Christ who came and died for you. Yes, 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 and praise God for that. But here's the thing. Because of that, because God loves you so much, in his grace, he does not make you the center of the story. He loves you too much for the universe to revolve around you because your shoulders can't bear that. And the most miserable life possible is the self-centered life. The life where you think you're the Lord, that is not the way of Jesus. God loves you too much that he is the center and we find our rightful place centering ourselves, not on and around ourselves, but on and around him and his glory. He has a plan. What this means is that God loves you so much and God has a plan and that plan is so much bigger than you. And yes, you're a part of it. We get invited into the plan, but don't believe for a minute that the plan revolves around you. It does not start with you. It does not end with you. The sovereign plan of God is Jesus Christ. It has always been Christ. It will always be Christ. And when we pick this up, we are picking up the sovereign plan of God that has been unfolding from the beginning. And, and we get to be a part of that. I want you to think about our story here in Matthew 2. Think about our man Herod. Um, without a doubt, without a doubt, Herod sees himself as the center of this whole universe and story. His power, his glory, Above all else, even to the extent of murdering kids, that's how central he thinks he is. He was threatened by this newborn king because that story, God's story, interferes with his story. Because the story of Jesus, man, that seeks to displace me, and I want none of that. I want to be the center. And so Herod wants to write his own story where he is the center, and yet through it all, in all of Herod's attempts to stop the plan of God, what does he do? He furthers it again and again and again. And one other thing that strikes me, one other thing that stands out to me about Herod and the plan of God, um, follow me here. Close, being close in proximity to Jesus, being close to the things of Jesus does not mean that we understand the sovereignty of God. Herod was close to Jesus. He knew the prophecies, and yet he failed to understand them because he viewed himself more significant than his Lord. He, view, he failed to understand it. And it is possible, church, for us to be in the church, to hear the gospel preach, and to still live our lives as though we're the center of our universe, of the universe, and everything should be, you know, spiraling around us. It's possible to pursue our own glory above his, even as the gospel is proclaimed. Um, I, in fact, I want to do some public self-evaluation here because here's the thing. Pastors can struggle with this more than anyone else. It is easy to pursue our own story, our own power, and to do it all in the name of Jesus 
to build our own kingdom under the guise of building his and to forget that all of this is about Christ and his glory. This is his story and not ours. Listen, God has a plan. His plan is Christ. Jesus is the center and all of this is for his glory. And and when we forget this or pursue our glory above his, we are failing to understand the sovereignty of God. We are seeking to move him down a notch and to move ourselves up. Our God doesn't share his sovereignty with anyone else. Our God does not share his glory with anyone else. Our God does not share his authority with anyone else, which brings me to the second thing. Not only is God sovereign in his plan, he has a plan, it is Jesus, he's sovereign in it, but he is also sovereign in his power. Our God is sovereign in his power. What this means is that not only does he have a plan, but our God has the authority, the ability, the power to accomplish that plan, and the sovereign plan of God cannot be thwarted, stopped, slowed, modified, hindered, any other word you put in there. There is no power in heaven or on earth that is able to stop the purpose, God's purpose and his plan. If we were to think about this story in, in Matthew 2, we have a baby. How vulnerable is a baby? I feel like our church, we have so many babies. And I love it. I see my baby right over there. They are so vulnerable. Jesus, so vulnerable. Mary, Joseph, so vulnerable. Hunted by powerful people with powerful weapons, vulnerable. And yet through it all, God protected and provided through his power so that his plan would ultimately happen. Even through the pain of what Herod was doing in his sin, even though Herod tried his best and all his power to stop it. Again, his attempts to stop it only ended up furthering it. Fulfilling more prophecies and bringing about the plan of God. And listen, let me call out one obvious thing here that I love. Verse 19, Herod dies. The truth is, is that God's plan is going to outlast any attempt to stop it. The power of God is more powerful than any attempt to stop it. The sovereign plan of God will not be stopped even through the links that Herod went through and the pain that was caused to stop it. Nothing can stop the plan of God. And I want to say something that is really, for me, this was, this was where I spent all my time this week, this statement right here. Nothing can stop our God from accomplishing everything he promises. Will you take the weight of that statement in? There are approximately, depending on how you organize it, 7,487 promises in Scripture made by God to humans. Let's get more specific. Depending on how you cut the cake, there are 750 promises made in the New Testament alone. Things that God has said, promises he has made to his children, 700 around, 750 promises, promises of peace and comfort, promises of eternal life and salvation. In fact, let me pull out one that we just looked at. We see one in Matthew 1. Just a few verses ago, Matthew 1, 21 says she's going to bear a son and call his name Jesus. 
And then what does it say? For he will save people from their sins. This is a promise from our God of forgiveness of our sins. We see promises everywhere. We see promises not only to us individually, but us collectively as a church. I think of Matthew 16, where on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a promise. We see them everywhere. I, I gotta tell you, you can plug in the blank of, of promises of God that you hold to and that you think of in your mind right now, but I gotta tell you, listen, every single one of them is sure to happen. Every single one of them. Why? Because nothing and no one in heaven and on earth can stop our God from accomplishing everything he said he would do. Because our God is sovereign in his plan and he is sovereign in his power to accomplish that plan. We stand on the promises of God. And in fact, I want to put a scripture up here. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says it so clearly, so directly, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All of the promises find their yes in Christ because our God is sovereign in his plan and his power. I want to encourage you with this. When you're reading scripture, when you're reading a text like Matthew 2, when you're reading this crazy story, listen, if you're dealing with anxiety, doubt, fear, I want to encourage you to come to this. And any time you see God saying something he's going to do, stop in that moment, take note of that, and realize that that promise is sure to happen every single time. Every promise that God has made to you in his word finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Every single one of them in his, in his time. God is sovereign in his power and he accomplishes all that he promises and all that he purposes. He's sovereign over all things. We got his plan. We got his power. There's one more that we need to see in this story because we see it all over. And that is God is sovereign in his presence with his creation, with his people. Okay, if you look at this story, all throughout this story, God intervenes in crazy ways. Um, it's crazy to see this. You have leading the men through the star, the wise men through the star. We have warning the wise men, hey, don't trust that Herod. Don't go back there. Warning Joseph in a dream, don't, and, and Mary, leading them to Egypt and to safety, and then leading them back again, and then after Herod dies, and then warning him, go, go to Nazareth. He intervenes all throughout this story. He steps in because here's the thing. He's not only sovereign in his plan. He's not only sovereign in his power, but the sovereign one, the Lord, is close, is near, and is present with us in his sovereignty. Multiple times, God intervenes to make sure that his plan unfolds. And I, and I think this gets us to something really important that I want to bring out here. Let's think about the will of God. A plan of God. When we know that our God is sovereign, when we know that he has a sovereign plan and he's powerful to accomplish that plan, when we know that, the question we often face in this life, something you may have already asked, is how do we know the plan of God? How do we know the will of God? 
in a general sense, but then also in a specific sense of the plan of God for my life. Like, how do I know it? When we talk about the sovereignty of God, this question comes up. And, and when we're faced with this, with the will of God, um, in, in my time pastorally, I think I can, I think I can say that I see two pendulum swings when we talk about the will of God. And both are dangerous, okay? Um, let's deal with one side over here. We can swing the pendulum over here and think, okay, um, God is sovereign. He's got a plan. He has all the power, so there's nothing I can do. Whatever happens will happen. Wee, right? It's like this fatalism, determinism. It's like we start to see ourselves as mindless robots or pawns in uh, God's game. And, and we just resign ourselves and say, well, if it's God's will, it'll happen. Here's the thing. That is not the picture Scripture paints of life in Christ. Why? Because not only is our God sovereign and has a plan and sovereign in his power, which he is, but he is also sovereign in his presence with us. Luis touched on this in communion this morning already. His relationship, his presence with us. We are not mindless robots in this life or pawns. And God is not just some distant chess master playing a board game as he wills. That's not the picture scripture paints. We sing a song that talks about God with us. Instead, in Christ, we are, we are children of God, called to be a part of God's story, the plan that is so much bigger than us, and God promises to be near to us, to be with us. His plan matters, and uh, you matter in his plan. And so over, pendulum swing over here is this fatalism, mindless robot thing, thinking if it's God's will, who cares, it's going to happen, right? Okay, let me touch on the other Pendulum swing over here. Just as dangerous. Over here, it swings um, where we are just straight up crippled. Like, oh my goodness, I'm going to miss the will of God. I'm going to miss it. I'm going to mess it all up. I'm going to mess up the perfect will of God. Here I go. Um, what job should I take? What girl should I marry? When should we have kids? Where should I move? Um, what school should I fill in the blank with all of the good questions? Questions, by the way, that we should take to God in prayer. Listen, um, three things here for anyone who finds themselves swinging the pendulum this way. Number one, God's will is not some mysterious bullseye. Number two, you're not going to miss it. Number three, you're not going to mess it up. I want to encourage you with something this morning. If you find yourself on this side of the pendulum swing, listen to me. Brother, sister, if God wants to get you to a specific place and a specific time to do a specific thing, he's going to do it. You're not going to miss it. Read Jonah. He'll find a way. Read Matthew 2. He will find a way. You're not going to miss it. He will accomplish his will. He is near, he is present, and therefore we don't have to live in fear that we're gonna miss it. Like, um, if you think of a mysterious bullseye, it's not like we're firing arrows and it's like, I wanna hit the center of God's will, but I'm down and to the left. Man, I missed it. 
This is not the way scripture paints the picture of our lives understanding the will of the Lord. Over here, we're mindless robots. Over here, we are fearful. Will I miss it? It's like a, what's been called analysis paralysis. Have you met someone who can't make a decision because it might be the wrong one? Listen, wherever you are this morning, wherever you find yourself on this pendulum swing, um, I, I think we need to try to keep this real simple. When we're talking about the will of God, the sovereign plan of God, I want us to be really simple. You ready for it? Center it up. Love God. Love others. Trust and obey his word. And he'll direct your path. Do those things. Do the things he's told us to do, and he will get you exactly where you need to be. Exactly where. Do those things, and you're not going to miss the will of God. Do those things, and you don't have to be anxious about missing the bullseye by an inch and a half to the bottom left. Do those things, and trust God is going to do everything he has promised to do. And how can I say that? Because God is sovereign in his plan. God is sovereign in his power to accomplish that plan, and God is sovereign in his presence with us as his children. He doesn't just have a plan and the power to accomplish it from afar. He has a plan, and he is near and close and present with us as we walk it out. This is incredible. I quoted John Frame earlier, and I want to finish his quote. Um, he says this, so even though scripture teaches that God controls everything, we should not think of his sovereignty as an impersonal mechanical determinism. God's sovereign lordship is deeply personal. As Lord, God not only controls everything efficaciously, universally, but he also utters commands, words of life, and that graciously govern the ongoing life of his creatures. He goes on to say, he says, as the Lord, he has made a sovereign commitment to be with those who are his. Indeed, God's sovereignty is a broad concept, including all that God is and all that he does, even embracing his love. Listen, this is our God. Our God is sovereign. In Matthew 2, we see God's plan on display. We see God's power on display and we see God's presence on display. God is sovereign. He was sovereign then and he is sovereign today. And I want to close with this reminder this morning. Um, listen, i say it again. God has a plan. He is sovereign. Christ is the center of that plan, not you. And now through Christ, you have been invited to join in this incredible unfolding story. You can't stop the plan because he is sovereign. You can't miss the plan because he is sovereign. So love God, love others, trust and obey his word, and he will direct your path. Because why? He is Sovereign, Just as he demonstrated it here in Matthew 2, our God is sovereign. So we, church, can submit to him and trust him. Do you trust him? 